bandwidth for the Weird Things podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world-class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com. Hello and welcome to the Weird Things Podcast. I'm Andrew Mean, joined by Brian Brushwood. Hello, beautiful people. Justin Robert Young. Hello, friends. And Mr. Bryce Castillo. Hi, everybody. That's me. 67 seconds, gentlemen. The SLS Rocket, the uh the the what's supposed to be the, the Vanguard premier heavy launch vehicle to push America further into space did a test over the weekend and they were able to get engine burn for 67 seconds. Unfortunately, they were trying for eight minutes. Yeah. Oh, oh it's Ouch. so tough because like I want I want I want a lot of people to succeed. I want everyone to succeed. It like what? It got too hot? Is that what it was? We don't know yet. We don't know. There's like a shutdown and it's like shut down. Oh, but there was a pretty rainbow over the water tower. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this just says major component failure. Uh, yeah. They have and, four engines. These are the same engines that were on the space shuttle. In the case of one of them, literally the same engine that was on a space shuttle. Oh, really? 25 like the year actual old physical. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Uh, so as we've talked about, the SLS rocket, uh, has been going on for a very long time. And, uh, according to the original plan, you know, this thing would have been up and around the moon by now. This was a pretty major test. It's not, if people are like, oh, you learn by testing. Yeah. The goal was to test it and then ship it to Canaveral the end of this end of, you know, by February. Um, oh not, wow! This so is, this was a yeah, this, this was, was a, a this um, was a dress rehearsal. This is a yeah, it's a air quotes test. Who knows air quotes what will happen? Uh, wink, wink. Look, we got this in the bag, buddy. Don't worry about it. So much so that because the idea is this is to hot fire the engine. The eight minutes is the amount of thrust that they would be using to basically send uh, Orion around the moon, right? So let's run the thing for eight minutes, make sure the engines can run for eight minutes. They bolt it to a test stand. And it's a pretty impressive thing to see how big this thing is and what's going on. Then at one point, NASA had been even if in the goal to try to get the moon quickly, it had been proposed like, what if we just skipped this hot fire test entirely? And went straight to launch, and then NASA's like, "No, we want to do a, we want to do this this hot fire test to make sure." And and let's we'll iterate for a moment the difference between like the SpaceX approach and the NASA approach. SpaceX approach is like, "Yeah, we'll think it, we think it'll work. Let's put it on a stand and run it. Oh, it blew up. Ah, design flaw. Let's go back and fix this because we found that piece, and we built. We have five more built to go. The NASA approach is let's test every component right, and then." The first launch, you know, the first time we really try to do this thing will be the for reals. We talked about before the space shuttle never launched without people. It wasn't capable of doing that. The first time the space shuttle launched in that configuration with the solid rocket boosters, that engine configuration, it had people on board. That was yeah. there were no tests before then. Uh, this is a similar configuration. It has four engines instead of like the shuttles three, but it has solid rocket boosters and it just has its payload up on top. There's no orbiter. And the theory was, oh, you know, well, we're using all these tested components and stuff because this will be a cheaper, faster way to build a rocket because we'll just use stuff we've used before. 
but in a slightly different configuration we've never used before and components are now 25 years old. Yeah, it's tough because on the one hand, I definitely applaud the cautious uh, extra step of, you know, doing the testing and, and whatever, but, but also, uh, I don't know, like, I, I feel so, uh, I would imagine, this is pure speculation, I would imagine it's very, very tough to be at NASA where you are squeezed uh, like during the space race, you had unlimited budget, unlimited fails. Everybody was throwing money at you left and right. But now you're squeezed behind uh, between the science and a bunch of um, uh, 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 pencil neck geeks, a bunch of pencil pushers telling you, you got to spend this amount and you got to show results. And well, why are we making a new engine when we have these old engines laying around and all that stuff? Um I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but but I, I just I, I really feel for NASA, uh, especially since uh, I, I don't know. It just feels like they're squeezed and in the middle of, of, of two well, immovable or unstoppable well, we, forces. And just to add the fact that this is often you get your funding from senators who say, well, you've got to use basically hint, hint, if you don't use the company in my home state, exactly. you ain't getting funded. Right. And, and part of the reason we have SLS was the only way we were able to get the crew you know, the, the private crew stuff was partial agreement was like, yeah, we'll fund, we'll let you hire SpaceX and other companies to launch rockets, but SLS gets funded. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that we should probably point out that what we have thought of NASA in the rise of SpaceX is different than, than what we're seeing here in, in when we say NASA, this is the NASA approach. This is when NASA builds stuff in house. Right. And, and, and the paradigm shift that, SpaceX and Blue Origin can provide is a off the rack approach uh, that they are vetting and creating their own products that NASA can then say, okay, well, we'll do X, Y, or Z. We will allocate our money that way. But, you know, the SLS is something that I think is fascinating because we can see in a parallel timeline, all right, SLS got approved during the Obama administration in that intervening time. Where are we now with either project? Like, where are we now in terms of what SpaceX has done as an off-the-rack approach? Where are we in terms of of uh, the federal government trying to build their own rockets in the way that we initially did, you know, back in the, the 60s and 70s? Well, and, and I think we're seeing what the results are. We're also seeing uh, there is a – you have James Webb Space Telescope. That has been like, like 15 years, 10 years overdue. That consistently – this big project has consistently failed. You have the Orion capsule, which I think we talked about before. They found out like, yeah, we think some of the systems may not be working right, but it's too late to fix it. So we're just going to reroute around it, which is problematic. I I, I think that I, – I, su I suspect that there's a fundamental flaw in how these big projects work and that they're never going to happen in the rate at which – the time at which they think they're going to take and – the ability for things to go wrong expands within that time. And there's a communicate. It's like, you know, there was a book written like 40 years ago called the mythical man month, which was all about how problematic it is to develop large software projects and people, you just throw more people at it and it gets more complex. And that's why like windows took forever. Like, Oh, we'll throw 5,000 more engineers into it. Like, no, that'll make it worse. There's a lot of stuff done about engineering and stuff. And you have like, you know, they they have like the different sort of approaches about like, you know, how you're supposed to get things done faster or leaner or different methods for stuff. 
but I don't know if they really, that was like Boeing had the problem with 727. I forgot what the method is that they use. I it just escapes me right now, but then everybody works on their separate thing. And then you try to integrate every, all the systems later on. And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, this thing doesn't really work. Nobody does projects at this scale very often, and they always seem to fall apart. And and it is worth noting that when it's a government project, you know, that has the U.S. logo and the U.S., you know, direct backing of, as you mentioned, senators and so on, uh, it does not have the luxury of being subsidized by other companies' failures. So, like, um, there was a time when, let's say, there's six, seven different players uh, you know, trying to make it to orbit and we still are covering stories from some of those those failures, you know, Virgin, uh, not a failure, but but like, for example, Virgin Galactic has a long way to go. Paul Allen's uh, uh, company that got folded and then rebought um, uh, Blue Origin, you know, has yet to have anything that appears to be able to get to orbit or whatever. It's so tempting for us to simply focus on like SpaceX did it. Why can't you do it? Because um, no, nobody could have known 15 years ago which of these individual private uh, attempts would be successes and which would be failures. And if you have the luxury of painting a target after the bullets hit the barn, then yeah, you're going to have a bullseye every time. And that, that, I would... that that's a bit of the illusion that I don't want to fall for when it comes to judging NASA against private industry. I, well, I would say that, I would say that the approach, I would argue to say that like the SpaceX approach was, Figure out how to build working prototypes faster. Like build build metal, get metal on the on the launch pad faster. I would say that if you would ask me 15 years ago which approach would I bet on, I'd, I would have bet on that because the problem is the complexity increases. Even you can on paper you can say like SLS is an example of we're using it's 40 year old technology and they can't get it to work because well we have these and we use 40 year old technology is dependable and like when they built those first. The boot, each engine had like a Motorola 686 processor in it, hmm. right? Um, now they're using much bigger processors. Like, well, we'll swap this out and this out. And it's like, okay, but now, you know, you need to test that. You need to do a lot of iterations and testing. Like, no, no, we know the booster works. And it's like, and I would kind of argue like, yeah, it is hard to sort of, in hindsight, I'd say that like, I would, I mean, I the SpaceX approach to me, if you have the money to keep going, I think that is the better approach because it's like, just build stuff, build stuff, build stuff. Sure. And, and, and we also, I, I suppose what I'm trying to acknowledge is that we have the benefit of comparing the winner of a tournament with many, many players against a single player. And, and, and I, I would, that approach has been used by everybody in the aerospace that NASA's done. And that's been what's problematic. James Webb, all of that, that's my argument to say is like, we kept doing that approach. It's why we didn't do any innovation in 40 years. Sorry, Justin. Yeah. I think that there were, there were signs that were there, but ultimately what we need to kind of look at is just the difference in what these processes are. One is, you know, the SLS was something that we were making fun of when it got approved. Because it it seemed like a gigantic aerospace boondoggle for, uh, you know, war, uh, you know, defense industry mainstays that were all going to uh, combine together and create something that was already, even at the time that it was approved, like a couple of years behind the times in terms of what you would want to have a design based on the time frame of when it would come out. So the fact that it is not worked is is you know more to me of a sign of of that kind of project having to come together as opposed to one singular vision and really 
ultimately this might hopefully in 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 terms of space exploration and for nasa this is them realizing that hey buying finished products is better than us trying to build all of this ourselves because they're not really building it themselves they're contracting with people anyway and and those people that they're contracting with might not be the best contractors to do exactly what they want to do yeah this uh this project definitely when we heard about it it was if you were to write um uh, not quite a parody, but but like uh, a, a, a just a gut instinct of like, what would a government 2.0 of a space shuttle program look like? It would be exactly what this is. It's it is hard. It absolutely, it's hard to Brian. It is hard to point and to say this company succeeded or this company is going to fail. I, I totally agree. I, I think that my bias kind of comes in and like whenever we look at these really big defense projects, whether it's Navy ships and stuff like this. And you look at where the incentives are, you're like, I think we can make a prediction of who's not going to be first across the finish line and who's not incentivized to. Yeah, um, and I think the incentives like is an important part. And I suppose that's what I was trying to bring up with the the the, the sense that I, I assume people at NASA feel so squeezed because uh, when when you have unlimited budget, unlimited momentum, unlimited popularity for you know your moonshot, uh, you get to you you do get to be bold, crazy, spend a lot of money, and let a lot of things blow up with no penalties. Um, and uh, NASA is simply after the, the the Challenger is not that, or after the Challenger and uh, uh, what was it for Columbia, um, they were simply no longer in that position uh, where they they no longer got to fail. When you don't get to fail, changes the way you play the game. And and so I don't know, it's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it, I, I'd say it's kind of frustrating. Though, it's like the main contractor for SLS is Boeing, and Boeing is so tied into our defense industry and so many other things. Yet, and part of the reason this exists is because of Boeing lobbyists. I mean, it's really the influence they have over politicians and what they're able to do. And, and it's it's one of the things we go like NASA should do this, and you have NASA's responsible to the United States government and Congress. I mean, that that's the end of the day who decides this stuff. And, you know, a handful of senators control and shape this. That's so interesting because you're favorites. right with the incentives, like it's not like they're going to sell more ordnance missiles by delivering humans safely to space. It's not like they're going to go up and somebody's like, well, I wasn't I was on the fence about you handing this defense contract to Boeing. But now that you sent humans to orbit or around the moon or what have you now, I'm really going to give you money. That would never happen. However, failure, any failure would be totally catastrophic in a, in a defense budget committee meeting. You'd, you'd think, but like, you know, you have, you look at, you start looking at the number of failures Boeing and Lockheed have had, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, and I guess that's, you know, the, the, the thing that I really want to separate with this is we, we keep saying like NASA, NASA, NASA. And when we say NASA, the branding of NASA, especially in in what happened in like the period between 1985 and 2005 is we, we began to understand NASA was just it's Houston. It's uh, of the, the guy with the crazy hair that land the Mars rover. It's scientists and everything. And, and I like that idea of NASA. That's a good branding of NASA, but also it, it's the shield for let's have all of these gigantic defense contractors build these like decade long time frame projects that are always over budget that always under deliver. And by the time that they actually get 
to to the launch pad are woefully behind what we could have done. And that's what I would just kind of like to separate is that is that this is not, you know, when, when, when we say the NASA way of doing things, it's, you know, by the time that it gets to the people that we think of as NASA, uh, all these decisions are already made. They're they're handed this hardware, and and they get much less of a say about it than I think we we we, we process through our minds. This is Lockheed. This is Boeing. You know, a, a big problem we've talked about this before is the sunk cost fallacy, which is you think, oh, I've already invested this much; it'd be a bad idea to quit now. This was supposed to launch in 2016. Five years behind, a real, the idea there's going to be a launch this year seems less realistic. And that's unfortunately in government programs, the longer you go and the more money that gets thrown at you, the likelihood you're going to get more money thrown at you, even if you have it delivered. And that is, you wonder if like we need to emphasize the thing, like if you're more than three years behind, no matter what, even it's because, oh, we couldn't secure funding from the Senate or whatever, that's a sign the project doesn't have enough legs to go, whether it's technically in the right place or whatever. And and that's, it's the sad thing is what it costs us is that, you know, we can go like, oh, but, you know, this kept engineers employed and all this. Like, yes, and it kept them from working on things that would work. You know, it kept them from working on things that would be, would, you know, contribute to overall productivity and efficiency. And, you know, the amount of money spent on SLS, every one of us, we go pay our taxes. It's not, it's it can be measured in the cents and dollars. Oh, yeah. really? So it's not insignificant. Yeah. I mean, you know, so far SLS, uh, I mean, ISS was $100 billion. SLS total budget now is like SLS total budget. I'm going to look this up. It's just insane. Yeah. SLS, $18.6 billion. $18.6 billion. Yeah. So per, per, or $2.5 billion a year in 2020. Oh, good God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think. I'm glad we're entering a world where we have very, very competent options for the people that we that we understand. When we say NASA and we think of the control room and we think of the research and we think of the science and we think of uh, uh, all that, I'm glad that my my bias has always been to getting them the best tools possible. And I feel like we are we are at a point now where we're clearly differentiating the idea of good reliable tools versus unreliable tools and and i think that that's that's a, a that is a step forward yes yeah, this, this you got to figure like this costs the average american like 25 dollars a year in your taxes wow Ugh. man <laughs> that's money that you could have spent there at patreon.com slash weird things nailed it patreon.com slash weird things is where you support successful this show uh uh here's something I've said it a million times. Go get your custom RSS feed. Uh, I was doing this with another show that I do that has a Patreon, and I know somebody who is extremely tech literate. And I had to stand over him and his cell phone because he didn't know how to get his custom RSS feed, like as if I were trying to show my mom email for the first time. <laughs> like, so here's what you do. You sign up uh, for the Patreon, and then... Uh, sometimes you get an email, but if you don't just go back to patreon.com slash weird things. Once you've logged in on that page, you'll see your custom RSS feed. Enter that to the podcatcher of your choice. I actually just went back and did this with a couple things that I hadn't 
uh, uh, uploaded my, my, my custom RSS feed for, and I am thrilled I did. It is uh, the best part of that platform, and it's the best part uh, for your best way for you to get the After Things podcast, which comes out earlier. So uh, go ahead and do that right now. Patreon.com slash weird thing. So on some positive news in space, and also let me point out that a number of these pro things I'm going to mention were given support from NASA. You know, NASA has helped support SpaceX, Blue Origin, and other companies. There are initiatives there. There are people that understand that, you know, we need to work with other space companies, et cetera, outside of just the mainstays. And so I'm going to mention some things and think about this is, I think, things that have benefited tremendously from NASA. I don't want to be like, just rip it into NASA, because like, I think... NASA buying of itself with more autonomy and able to do stuff would probably be pretty amazing. So over the weekend, uh, Blue Origin, or uh, this week, rather, Blue Origin was able to, they tested their new crew capsule, which is going to go on top of their uh, Shepard booster, which is their, it's a suborbital, but it does go above the Kármán line, which is the line of, line of space. So this thing goes, you know, a few thousand miles an hour up goes up there and people get would be able to be in weightlessness. There was nobody on board, but they showed the actual capsule design. It's got big, huge windows. So it's very much a tourist type experience. Have we so, heard anything from Blue Origin that that isn't implying that that I, I and, and let me let me clarify before I even say this. Uh, I assume that when you get into to, uh, rocketry, you're not doing it just for tourists. But I understand why you might just make that your only stated goal, knowing that there'll be ancillary benefits down the road. Are, have we gotten to a, a payload to orbit uh, even whisper from Blue Origin yet? Well, remember, they also build the BE-4 engines, uh, which are going to be used to power with the United Launch Alliance. So those are going to be used for that. So they've been developing the, those are uh, methane engines. And so they developed those and those are going to be on board the Vulcan, the Vulcan Center, uh, Centaur rocket. So um, we could see something pretty soon where basically their engines power another space vehicle. And that feels that feels like imagine that essentially you're taking, uh, you know, an awesome trip to Astro World, so to speak, you know, some kind of six flags experience. Uh, but what you're really doing is subsidizing the research that is eventually going to let humanity bust out of this Petri dish. That feels like a morally rad thing to do if you have money to set fire to. Yeah, and and I would say that their strategy, they started before SpaceX, and they're clearly nowhere near as far along as SpaceX is in, in a lot of ways you would measure sort of success. That being said, the BE-4 engine, if it gets used in the, you know, the Vulcan rocket, it gets used there, they're going to be building the capability, and they're very powerful. The BE-4s are amazing engines. Um, you know, that's, you know, space right now, it's about engines, you know, it's engines and we're now getting more into chassis and things like that for usability. So it'll be helpful all around, but I would love to see them build their own space vehicle, but. Oh, do you, do you think there's, um, I, I assume that there's barring some kind of like revolutionary new fuel or engine or whatever. I assume that a single stage to orbit just uh, will that I, I uh, actually, uh, there, there's no way. Smarter people than me have asked the question, is there a single stage to orbit possible? Yeah, it is, I mean, it is possible. Like, you could you could probably take the Starship I guess for, for, for a small, yeah, small enough payload. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and Brian, that's it, is the idea is it's like, 
so much of your 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 engines and your fuel tanks and all that are designed to get you past you know the the first you know to get you up to a certain amount of velocity and after that you don't need them and why why drag them with you and you know so and i there's an elegance to single stage but you think now with automation and you think about how trains work you know think about like you get in a train you don't worry if the locomotive switches and you switch parts or components because we've been doing this for 100 years <laughs> and, and that's a pretty good way to put it it's just like why does the coal have to be in just a coal car and why do the people have to just be in a people car why <laughs> when are we going to make a single stage train that has everything in it yeah, well, it's called a car, Brian. Okay. Turns out not as efficient as a train. <laughs> uh, and I was, that was, in, and that's, and in, in, in that lack of, let's say that lack of elegance to, it certainly bothers Elon Musk, but he announced what they're going to do with the, uh, they're trying to do now with the, 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 the heavy booster for the Starship, um, the, the booster stage. He wants it to land exactly back on the launch pad without even even having any landing legs. And one of the things they're talking about, the idea is like having the grid fins catch on to something. So basically that booster would come back down and just land right where it came off from. And they'd be ready which, to go straight off again, which again, it's not exactly elegant the way a, a Boeing 737 pulls up to the jet port, you know, with, with somebody, you know, like there's no side view mirrors or whatever, you know, you have to have somebody direct, but, but ultimately it, it gets the job done. Uh, even if that was a little bit kludgy, that, that turnaround time, I mean, you could tell, uh, when, when he's already adopting the Southwest airlines model of, you know, we need faster turnaround times, uh, that that's, 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 that's far reaching thought. Yeah. And it's, and it's really good you know, it's really good economist thinking, you know, it's that, Hey, I have an asset. How do I make this asset as inexpensive as possible? I use it as much as I can. Like, you know, like the you know, Southwest and other airlines realized, Oh, well, if we can keep our planes in the air, if, if they can handle the, the wear, the wear is not going to bother them and we can keep them in the air all the time, then they're cheaper. And, you know, and, yeah. and they were willing in the Southwest airlines example, they were willing to, um, in a world where uh, during during price controls and 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 government uh, uh, restrictions on how many flights you could do or whatever, they uh, uh, and, and all the prices were fixed. Airlines could only kind of compete on the glamour of being part of the jet set. That's why I used to get you know China and your meal on there and all that stuff. Uh, uh, once that went away and it became about like, hey, we're only making money when we're moving people. Then it was like as unglamorous as it is. Just, just get in the line. We don't care where you sit. It's a bus. Just go, and uh, and and that yeah. worked uh, against them in a world where business travelers wanted to be glamorous, and so they had to position themselves as the airline for everybody. You know, spend spend. You know, you probably have this much in your wallet right now. Go. And it wasn't until the early aughts that they really made a play for uh, business travel. Um, it, it's it's really a fascinating history. Yeah. Yeah, the airline business. There was a, a great book too. If I get a chance to read one on uh, JetBlue too, and in in you know one of the advantages that new airlines have over older airlines is older airlines your flight crews are older, and so your pay your salaries are higher, and your pension payouts are higher, et cetera. And yeah, they, you know, they, just they also a lot have of weird dynamics. Uh, and I think we had a Justin and I were talking about this on a happy hour or something. We were talking about the entanglements of of some airlines with a. Uh, uh, union labor and, and existing agreements and that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, we had, a, a, a fan of the show write in and, and give us more of the details behind the scenes on that. Yeah. It's, uh, fascinating, but, uh, complex, but, um, 
complicated. Over yeah. our pay grade, one might say. Yeah. Although we can and get our to heads because yeah. they're flying. <laughs> they're good. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah. So in other news, uh, which is cool, is Virgin Orbit. Remember, there's Virgin Galactic and there's Virgin Orbit and uh, a lot of Virgins out there. Virgin Gal Virgin Orbit is the one that's actually using. They have a Cosmic Girl, which is their big airplane that they use to launch rockets from. They actually achieved orbit. They've earned the orbit title of their name. They launched a rocket with a satellite payload. They tried this back oh. in May. and Oh, they just same title. I didn't even read this headline. That's hilarious. <laughs> Eric the, Eric Berger writes, Ars Tech at Virgin Orbit just earned the orbit part of its name. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, was, I swear I wasn't copying that. Um, so any event, um, that's kind of exciting news is that um, they've actually now, what they do is they take, they have a rocket. It's mounted underneath a big airplane. That airplane goes up to a high altitude. And then the rocket deploys and then takes off from there and then heads off into space. It's so funny because that's the kind of thought that I had as a child. And I understand like uh, the reason they would put a space shuttle on the back of a, you know, Boeing jet or whatever uh, was, was either to, you know, test it to, to glide on down or to move it from point A to point B and so on. And there was some part of my child brain that was like, seems like if you wanted to go to space, you should already be most of the way there and then launch off of that. And to see that become a reality uh, as, as I creep up to my 50s is, is amazing. Well, Brian, it was a reality before you were born, though. Yeah, the Pegasus rockets uh, you had in remember, you know, Chuck Yeager when he was uh, just, you know, you know, scraping along the edge of space. Those were all launched from airplanes. So, um, uh you know, that was actually some of the first ways they tried to do stuff was like, let's just launch it from a plane. Yeah. Of course, remember well, Moonraker, and, and too. I guess, yeah, we also got that with uh, with uh, Virgin Galactic's uh, when they acquired uh, uh, Burt Rutan's uh, Spaceship One. Uh, same, similar thing. Mm -hmm. And Ripper Moonraker. Oh, I never saw it. Who can forget Moonraker? Brian can, because he never saw it. That yeah. was where they uh, decide. They have this... Richard Branson, Elon Musk character before either one of them were real personalities in those fields, or even Elon, you know, Elon was probably just born, but there's a plan to steal this space shuttle and it's on top of an airplane. And basically there's a some pilots hiding on board the space shuttle and they take off from the top of the airplane and steal it. That's awesome. That's very different from the book. <laughs> um so it's cool. I would say that it's 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 a frustrating and you know, SLS the it seems to be you know, not going in the direction we'd like it to. It would be great to have this other system, this sort of you know reliable system that's capable of doing this. We're going to see what's going to happen. You know, we're days away from new administrations coming in. Uh, the Senate, you know, now the change up of the the Senate. Richard Shelby, or Shelby, who is the senator from Alabama, who is part of the big reason that SLS exists and why it's all built in Alabama is because of him. Well. No longer in the majority power in the Senate. And so mm. let's see what's going to happen there. What's it going to mean for the rest of, you know, NASA, et cetera. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm at a point with space travel where we've seen enough results from enough players that it's a, it is a put up or shut up uh, uh, world right now if you want to play in, in, in the rocket game. You know, to me, SpaceX set such a lead dog example of where you need to be to 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 play the game. And 
I know we would love, we all love more options. I'm here for reliable tools. I don't believe that the SLS is or will be a reliable tool for NASA. And I, 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 I have to suppress a wry smile to, when I see it fail. Yeah. And I don't, you know, and again, for it, it's, we don't really have a clear idea what's going to be, you know, the, the, the incoming administration's plan for space in general and where they want to do. And, uh, neither party really is known for disrupting the, tr- the traditional old school partners. So it might just be yeah. more of the same. We'll see. The metaphor that I'm hopeful for, and, and I think I first heard it about a decade ago from you, Andrew, where it's like, we don't expect the United States Postal Service to also build the vehicles that deliver the mail. And, and that's where we want to be with NASA. And I really, I'm really hopeful for that. I don't, I don't, I don't care who, who builds the engines as long as they go. The one, the one thing I would say is that now we have a public idea of what goes into this in a way that we hadn't before. You know, like Elon Musk is a very famous person. SpaceX is a very famous company. Jeff Bezos and is a very famous person in Blue Origin. Jeff is, who? You know, yeah, exactly. Um, so if we're in a world where the richest people in the world are putting these things together, then even as... Uh, uh, as as you pointed out, Andrew, things are unlikely to change because nobody in Washington really wants to change anything. Everybody in Washington just kind of wants to keep their jobs forever. Uh, then, you know, the one substitute to that is public pressure. And now at least there's people that know what these things are. They know that, oh, I saw the SpaceX thing land the rocket. That was cool looking. Does this thing do that or does it not? Like that is public pressure that I don't think that really has been part of any kind of public or congressional decision on space ever. Like, you know, because but to, to, to get into it, it was, hey, here's a blank check from Uncle Sam. Get us to the moon before the Ruskies. And and now it's like, well, then we went through decades and decades of, of everybody throwing their hands up and saying, ah, guess space is too expensive. Uh, and, and now we're at a point where, Oh, look, this is options, big public, hard to ignore options. Yep. Gentlemen, do you want to picks? Yeah, I got to pick, uh, let me get the exact name of it. But, uh, if not this exact app, uh, certainly the experience, my pick is the experience of watching the international space station rise over the horizon exactly on cue there's a number of different satellite tracker apps um i believe this one that i downloaded was called iss starlink it's like the ar stuff is we've talked about ar uh with apple devices uh in the past man it's so precise right now it's a really great time to get into backyard astronomy it's a great time to uh, i, I want to do it again uh seeing if i could spot uh, a bunch of um uh, the the uh, iridium satellites uh, uh, for the first time ever. I finally caught in the telescope Mercury. It's a great time to uh, while you still can go outside and and see the stars. Uh, we were talking about how uh, Brant told me the other day that uh, one third of humanity is unable to see the Milky Way, full stop, because of light pollution. And that's only going to get worse. So right now we're at a pretty sweet spot where if you're outside of the city, you uh, you are going to be able to find all the interesting objects and see them easier than before. Highly recommended experience. 
And I, well, I think the full name of that app is Starlink and ISS NASA Tracker. Yeah, that sounds right. That's the that's the icon that I saw. Yeah, I think they shorten it on the on the home screen. But this is for Starlink satellites and ISS. And and I did find a number of them, or or any of those, uh, you know, Sky Tour apps. So worth it. It is. It is neat. Where one of my favorite things to do is like go out to Joshua Tree, which is if you look, you can find you can look at a map called Dark Sky Territory. And of course, part of the reason why one third can't see the Milky Way is because cities which right. you know the push for urban living but you go out to there and it is neat because you just lay there on a moonless night and you just see little things flitting overhead and it is it's great for seeing a meteor shower but just to even watch the little little specks and satellites and stuff and sometimes it's neat to not even know what it is but you just see all kinds of weird things nice we've got a map of dark sky places right here which is pretty cool and that is yeah the first time i think the first time i really ever noticed the milky way is maybe and I've been camping and stuff as a kid, but probably never bothered to look up. But probably on a cruise ship at night, just looking up and all of a sudden and seeing, holy cow, that's a lot of stars. Yeah. That's a lot of stars. Uh, hey, I got a pick, and it involves three stars that I was unfamiliar with. Uh, uh, Andrew recommended to me the Bee Gees documentary on HBO, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart? Uh, and you know, I tweeted this that like when Andrew recommended it to me with high praise, I was like, I don't really care about disco. Who cares? <laughs> Whatever. I want the Bee Gees. They get an hour and a half into this like two hour and fifteen minute documentary before they even get to Saturday Night Fever and everything that led up to it. They had this like. You know how in like Spinal Tap, when when they they show that Spinal Tap's been around forever, and they were like Beatles ripoffs, and then they were you know like these like hippie ripoffs before they became a metal band. They're like a good version of that. Like they did credible folk, they did credible soul, they, like everything that they touched, they did extraordinarily well because everything can be aided by these three brothers who have this blood harmony of of their voices and 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 can meld it really well. But also, I was unaware that they were the songwriters behind everything that that they that they constructed everything. So it's like I came in not giving a rat's ass about the Bee Gees, and I left thinking like, are they the greatest band of all time? Like, are they <laughs> like if you if you stack up the fact that like they've been doing it for as for longer than anybody else that we would consider the greatest band of all time, that they oftentimes you know uh, uh they wrote all their own stuff, which many of the greatest bands of all time did not like they're kind of in a, like also receiving votes situation after watching this documentary. I loved it. There's multiple times in there where, cause you, they get into the pre Beatle, the pre BGs era. And you're like, I know that song. I didn't know that was a BG song and they wrote it, you know, and then you get into the Bee Gees era, of course, and how how that sound came about is fascinating. There's a lot of examples of like, you know, way before, like, yeah, we were waiting to go into the studio to record, the lights went out. And that's when we came up with the song New York, New York Mining Disaster, which became a hit, you know, and then they're like, oh, you know, you know, I had to go over a bridge every day and I heard this rhythm. And that became the rhythm for I won't spoil it for you. So many of these like Oh, I, we saw this thing and all of a sudden it became this. And then when they, you look at the songwriting phase, like, wait, they wrote that song? They wrote that song? And then you're like, holy cow, they, I was not a fan before. I'm very much a fan now. 
Yeah, no, great. And the documentary is very smart in who they pull for their uh their like off their their talking head interviews. Uh they get a lot of brothers, people in brother bands. So they get Noel Gallagher from Oasis, they get uh, one of the Jonas brothers when they're talking Nick. about uh uh gigantic backlashes to bands. Uh, they have Chris Martin of Coldplay, and he's like talking about it. So they're it, it's it's informed. It is it is uh, there, there's ne- there's very rarely a time that there's like a wasted celebrity talking head, and they always kind of feel like they are uh, uh, expressing an element of their own story that that the Bee Gees really personified. Uh, uh, it is. It's great. It, it, it is really an exceptional music documentary. It's directed by Frank Marshall, the director, who's, you know, Kathleen Kennedy's husband. Um, and uh, very well done. They use a lot of footage from there was an Annie biography documentary from 1999 when all three brother, brothers were alive. And so they use a footage, a lot of footage from that you know, to get kind of the other brothers perspectives. I thought they did it really well because you can then go watch that documentary, too. And they do address there was one glaring hole in this documentary where they never talk about because they go through like the whole you know, Bee Gees, you know, at the height of popularity, all the things going on and then kind of the backlash. But they leave out a little movie <gasps> called Sergeant, Sergeant Pepper's, Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. Yep. Ne- it never I- gets mentioned. Never gets mentioned. And it's like, that's a little bit, you know, you're going to go cover the Beatles. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> So, so the um, any biography was, that go into was, like how horrible was that, that a black was. eye on on either of their careers or why? I, I I've never seen the movie. Um, I did always find it odd that it would be the PGs portraying the titular well, characters. Have, when you go back into the history and you realize, like, they had the same management company, all same. There was a lot of overlap with them, and the Beatles were a few years ahead of them. There was a lot of overlap. They were friends with them, and there was there was a big tight because. We just think of, you know, our generation, we think of Bee Gees, we just think of staying alive with the high-pitched songs and not thinking of early stage when they were contemporary to the Beatles and doing, you know, their own thing. I would say that that the problem was is at the point where they started to have hits like from Jive Talking on Forward, they had the new sound and disco became popular. They were in heavy, heavy rotation. And then they do like Children of the World album. And then they do the Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever album comes out, like the biggest selling album of all time. And then there's Beatles or Beatles, BGs everywhere. Then, oh, by the way, here they are in a movie covering Beatles songs was probably just people's brains would just went to overload. Like, okay, enough, <laughs> enough, enough. Yeah, there is. There's a moment in the documentary that I think is, is appropriate for this documentary because it's, it, it, this is about the, the Bee Gees, but they, they delve into it a little bit of the 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 disco sucks phenomenon yeah, the backlash the, the the backlash to disco and taking a a look at that from our modern perspective where we have seen situations where people have you know uh, used popular uh art like star wars or video games i'm just using as an example uh to have a you know whether or not it is intended 
a larger cultural conversation is kind of a proxy happening. war. Yeah, like, like, yeah. like, like, look, man, um, uh, I can't even tell you the two sides in Guatemala. All I know is that's the battleground between us and the USSR. And whether or not the people that are fighting it are that are on the front lines, they're like, no, I just think that the, they play the Bee Gees on the radio too much. Like, not that I'm denigrating the popularization of a art form that is loved by women and my, and, and gays. Like, I'm, I don't care about that. I just don't like Barry Gibbs high voice. And, and it's like, there's a lot that goes on. And, and I think that, that there, I, I would, I would, I would like to see kind of a further exploration when, in looking at these kinds of, of moments, but I thought it was interesting to, you know, in, in this story, they, they get a little bit into the cultural element, element of it, but mostly it's just, juxtaposed with the fact that the Bee Gees in their own world are gods. They're going on the biggest tour that they've ever had. They've got a custom plane. They're playing uh, the, what is now the O.co or Oracle Arena right down the street from me three nights in a row. As soon as we as soon as you start, the opening shot is them in Oakland. And I'm like, oh, let me look up what they did. Three nights, three nights sold out in in that uh, uh, basketball arena. And I presume it was only because they couldn't play the football arena, which is where they were playing in in some of the other stops. So uh uh just just insane great and man the music is rad like the music's really good uh i gotta pick uh i'll keep this kind of short and sweet because i think it's i think it's good not great uh we're starting to watch uh wandavision for its spoiler in time which uh the first two episodes just came out on friday and i think this is a a neat little uh an interesting thing they're they're uh, you know, it's Wanda and Vision from the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they seem to just wake up in uh, in an old style sitcom. And uh, why are they there? And and how does it happen? And uh, they 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 really kind of only hint at the edges of like them actually thinking it's it's a strange position to be in, uh, let alone trying to figure it out. Um, I I thought this was was kind of neat. The first two episodes are kind of presented in a like a black and white sitcom and uh it seems like they're gonna try and do a lot of different styles of sitcom um over the season they're and they're slowly moving through the years so the first one very much bewitched uh you know the second one uh you know a, a slightly more town focused uh, show but it seems like they are slowly moving in, yeah 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 yeah, at the Slowly end of the second episode, more. you see suddenly they're in color and well, yeah. you're onto a different. Yeah, I, I um, I I kind of dig it. I love it. Like, and, I love and, it and, so and much. I, and, I, and the, and the and slower I, and they I, roll it, the the more yeah. impressed I get. Like, it, it felt it felt like a like a weird comic series mm-hmm. where they're like, which it's like, based no. on. Oh, it is based on. Okay, good. Oh. So yeah, so I it, it just it felt like just like one of those weird runs where it's like, no, we're gonna let you sit in the dark for a while. We're not gonna tell you exactly what it is, but mm-hmm. there's a million ways that you can that you can uh, take it from there. Uh, uh, the 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 callbacks are obviously very intricate. Uh, you know, I don't know. I was just I, I watched and when I watched it, I was like. Eh, like could have used some kind of framing of like, you know, cause at a certain point through, through the first episode, you're like, are they really just cosplaying as bewitched? We're just doing mm-hmm. a cause a bewitched cosplay thing. Like, and, and I, 
I liked that part of it the most. Like, I don't particularly care about Wanda or Vision in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think they are the two most milquetoast people on those entire crews. Um, so I think this is a really interesting way to give them Have a lot of Hawkeye? character. Uh, also, <laughs> he's up there. He's up there. Don't worry. He's up there. He's a, he's a sociopath, though, you know, so you know that he's the sociopathic one. Um, so I like kind of giving them something to do and giving them a lot of direction. The only thing is, because when I, you know, you go to the uh, the listing for it on Disney Plus and, it's a, and it says, you know, um, uh, superhero and drama and mystery. And I went, oh, well, if this is a mystery, obviously it's going to be someone's under a spell or someone's in a coma, right? There's like not a, I, I feel like as I've, in I've, terms I've of dug, a Ming, I've, a mystery. I've dug, I've dug around the edges. Because I, I said, as soon as I watched the first two, I'm like, I'm not going to go on the internet. I'm not going to go on the internet because everyone's going to have everything explained and they're going to mm -hmm. know where it came from. And and so I haven't, I glanced. I haven't subscribed to the WandaVision subreddit, but uh -huh. I have I have glanced at the page. There's some really cool things if, if, so, if where this is going is where people are hinting. I, I would love to be surprised with a very out of left field mystery here, but I see the little Marvel badge on it. I think, well, she's going to be... In she got really upset and she's made she's a big in space. Psychic or, prison. She's in a big tube and they're keeping her in the tube. And I I hope that it breaks out of that. Um, and right now the show is good and it's keeping me on for the value of the show. But if this is a mystery, boy, I need it to be more than the bad she's guy a has a crystal. Yeah. yeah. I I um. I never read the comic that it's, in, I think that it's inspired from, but I kind of sort of saw like artwork and the premise, but I will say that in this, the second episode at the end, huge, huge clue, huge clear yeah. clue about what's going on. And, and to, you know, Bryce, whatever, like, I think that's kind of evident as far as like, what's part of part of it. And I don't, I, I, I just, if it wraps up nicely, I'm very happy I love, I really, the more I think about it, the more I love this because it's so different. Mm -hmm. It is Marvel saying, we'll take a chance or we're going to be a little bit bolder in our storytelling. In each one of those, the first one is a 50 style, is a very much a 50 style sitcom because the beds are separated. The second yeah. one is 60s because then the, the beds symbolically come together and other the styles and stuff to that. Sure. Each one of those was very faithfully sort of done, even to the point that like, I was laughing because the one they did in the 60s, they used the most generic location that you can to have a neighborhood, which is at the end yeah. of my block. Oh, really? And that's, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the Warner Brothers ranch. And so, you know, that's the funny part. I'm like, I'm like, I know that, you know, and then it's, I walk by there every day, the back of their house. And so, oh, but nice. and it's great because you would never use that in a normal Marvel movie. You would never go use this so plainly look like Hollywood back lot and then the the town square is universal that's uh hill valley the gazebo uh, all of yeah, that, yeah. where they do also the magic uh, show. Uh, uh, dukes of hazard is where i remember it most from yeah yep mm -hmm. yep hazard so but i thought each one of those as a parody of that kind of sitcom they managed to do the parody really well and still be funny and entertaining and not look at how stupid this is but more let's try to work within the trope of this let's have a little bit more drama of these characters who have their sort of issues and they're entertaining. I was very entertained. I'm ready to go watch them again. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, the, the further I got away from it, the more I was excited about it, mostly because what, what Bryce said, like, look, I think that they're, 
there is going to be an element of of disappointed fans who want the normal Marvel. Every episode ends with the punch and a kick and uh, a glowing spire in the sky and and somebody making a a a, 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 a wink to the camera kind of reference. Uh, but you know that's I, I I get that in a movie when you got two hours and people are there to see certain beats get hit, so you got to figure out new ways to hit them. In a television show, be a little crazier, be a little, be a little and, nuttier, and you know. And, and that's what I love. I love, especially because hey, look, Paul Bettany is a great actor, and he's he seems like he is just thrilled to be playing this like wacky sitcom version of uh, 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 of Vision a robot and, pretending to be a man, <laughs> of a robot pretending to be a man pretending to be Darren from Bewitched, and and then on the other side. Elizabeth Olsen is somebody that based on where I'm assuming this story is going to go is, is really going to be the linchpin of this like, you know, parody plus twin peaks plus sci-fi Marvel kind of thing. That is, that is happening. I'm, I'm, I don't know. The further I got away from it, the more I really dug it. I, my kind of my summation on my point on this, this is the first real Marvel TV show we've seen from the MCU, the movie team. We've had the other yeah. stuff, the TV stuff, which I never got into, always thought it was just amateurish and never thought the writing was really particularly strong. And it was just dumb thing after dumb thing that you can be like, oh, you should watch it. I'm like, I'm like, well, they break into a facility and they just kill security guards or innocent people. Like, yeah, but I'm like, how many dumb things are you going to ask me to forgive? How many dumb things before a thing becomes dumb? And, and that was my problem with the other Marvel shows. The Netflix stuff I thought was was good was was better, but then it just sort of went you know off a off a thing. But this is the first like really let's integrate this into the use our main characters, our main story, get the same sort of teams that we'd use for film stuff. I think it's off to a great start, and it's because it's trying to be something different. It's not trying to be you know a Marvel movie cut into ten pieces. Yeah. Uh, did you have a pick, Andrew? My pick is. The pick I'm about to pick. Um, no, uh, have you guys seen Wayne? Uh, uh, I have not, but I I do know that our 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 friend Meryl Barr is a a proselytizer for for the Church of Wayne. So so if you, if you liked it, then then that will be two opinions I trust that I would like I would I would have to investigate. I am going to be the from the Burbank chapter of the Church of Wayne. My dad told me, oh, you should see Wayne. Um, Wayne is about a 16-year-old kid from Massachusetts who is very moral, but very violent, has a very, very troubled background, and kind of goes on the run. Uh, and it is a... a it's comedic, it's violent, it's funny, the characters are amazing... There is one of the greatest speeches I've ever heard in TV happened in an episode with a character who's this, <laughs> when you get there, you'll probably get there. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. Oh, and uh, I've the, seen an this, episode of this. Girl, yeah. Uh, uh, this yeah, used to be the, on, on YouTube premium. This was a YouTube premium show for the first season. And yeah. Was it? Yeah. yeah I thought we it, talked about it on Cord Killers briefly. Uh, well, it's on. Amazon Prime now. Nice. The girlfriend's father, the super violent uh, guy, is played by Dean Winter. 
And so uh, Dean Winters, you know, uh, from the beeper, you know, beeper salesman, Dean Winters. And, oh, the beeper king. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is in his, he's got these two twin sons that are like, you know, like got like the Southie sort of accents that are like idiots and every character in there is sort of a delight. Um, and then sometimes surprising. And it is, I, I cannot recommend the show enough. Um, it's just, just very, very fun. Nice. So I'm glad that I got picked up. I, it seems like a, a, like Cobra Kai, you know, went over to, uh, to Netflix. Netflix. So it, it, it's it's good to see YouTube Premium had a couple of good things and I'm glad to see some of these other shows getting picked up and revived. I hope they do a second season. I hope Amazon decides to pick that up. I way way better than Cobra Kai. Way better than Cobra Kai. It's just wow. There's it's just uh it's really good. So try to look at the staff who wrote it, but anyhow, um gentlemen it's been weird. The Pyramid Club hopes you have enjoyed this program.